The time is now. Volume 7, Episode 133, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast, and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. We are knee-deep here in the hot summer of 2023, and I don't just mean the temperature. We got a lot of hot topics going on in labor and employment, and I'm going to talk to you about them today. It absolutely is. There's been so much going on. I don't know if you've been enjoying this terrific, or maybe not so terrific, depending on your point of view, weather, uh, at the beach, taking some time off, relaxing a little bit from a tough first half of 2023. Maybe you've missed some things that are going on. Maybe you haven't, but either way, uh, there is a bunch of things that I want to talk to you about today and update you on, beginning with a couple of really important Supreme Court decisions uh, that may have some significant impact on employers. Both of these decisions came out at the end of the Supreme Court's last term on June 29th, 2023. The first one, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, the name of the case is Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus Harvard. And it was not really a surprising decision. It's one that I think was expected. Essentially, the decision is that colleges and universities can no longer take race into account when making admissions decisions. Now, on its face, the decision applied only to university admission programs and only to the extent that they might be violative of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. The decision didn't really get into whether race-based decisions would be violative of other statutes or other sources, such as Title VII or as other obligations may apply to federal contractors, for example. For decades, the United States Supreme Court precedent has allowed race to be considered if it was done so narrowly to enhance diversity and educational experiences of students. But still, once this decision came out on June 29th, a lot of people were questioning whether there would be an impact on DE&I programs and the ability, maybe even the requirement, that employers now have to consider certain criteria for employment-related decisions in order to provide for affirmative action and equal opportunity to underrepresented groups. Again, the United States Supreme Court's June 29th decision 
didn't impose new or different obligations in this area on employers. But I think we will see a flurry of new claims or lawsuits or at least internal complaints by employees that contend that organizational diversity statements or commitments are evidence that a protected characteristic like race is being used by employers. In fact, we are already, I think, starting to see an uptick in reverse discrimination cases, and I think we will continue to see an uptick in reverse discrimination cases. Perhaps we may see an increase of attacks on employer-sponsored mentor programs or the use by organizations of affinity groups that have been growing in popularity. If anything, I think employers should now pay even more careful attention to how narrowly tailored your diversity or affirmative action program is. Certainly in the area of colleges and universities, those receiving federal funding, the Supreme Court now says you cannot consider race even under the narrow exception that had been in existence, as I said, for decades. Though the majority decision says that you can consider statements provided by candidates as to how race may have impacted or influenced their life experiences. But you need to look carefully and train carefully those who are going to be making admission-based decisions in your colleges and universities. And you do need to focus on how you are going about making decisions and how you are speaking to those who are making those decisions about what they should and should not be thinking about. When it comes to private employers, though, again, while the Supreme Court's June 29th decision does not have a direct impact on employment, affirmative action, or, or DE&I programs, private employers should take this as an opportunity now to look closely at any policies or practices that focus on certain characteristics as the primary focus for hiring or other employment decisions. Unlike in the university setting, the Supreme Court had not previously allowed race-motivated decisions even in the interest of improving workplace diversity. Again, the rules haven't necessarily changed with this new Supreme Court decision, but the level of scrutiny, I think, may be heightened in light of the decision and all of the discussions now surrounding that decision. So there will be a heightened scrutiny. I think there will be internal and external claims and challenges brought. And so whether or not you as an organization change, tweak, or do anything with respect to your existing DE&I programs, it is important from an organizational standpoint that you do look at what you're doing and see if what you're doing can otherwise withstand scrutiny. The EEOC has permitted, and in many instances suggested, that employers adopt DE&I programs to promote greater diversity, equity, and inclusion of minority and other underrepresented groups in the workplace. Though the EEOC still does require that care be taken, that your organization's program does not require the termination of non-targeted employees or create an absolute bar to advancement for non-targeted employees, or expressly use inflexible quotas that ignore qualifications. Any affirmative action program by private employers must be part of a remedial plan 
that itself has to be temporary, has to be narrowly tailored to the particular company, and has to be justified by strong evidence that remedial action for that particular company is necessary. Interestingly, though again not surprisingly, at least two of the current EEOC commissioners recently penned articles on the Supreme Court's June 29th decision. Commissioner Andrea Lucas, and here's a bit of a tease, you will hear from her upcoming on an episode here of the podcast very soon. Commissioner Andrea Lucas of the EEOC noted that, quote, affirmative action appears to be more prevalent than ever. But that laws enforced by the EEOC require equal opportunity, not equity, end quote. In other words, the EEOC seeks to prevent and eliminate discrimination, but does not require that there be any particular equitable outcome. Commissioner Lucas explores and explains that companies have to take a hard look at diversity programs and that they should not specifically be relying on higher ed standards that now, after the Supreme Court's June 29th decision, appear to be outdated. Another current EEOC commissioner, Commissioner Jocelyn Samuels, together with her attorney advisor, Zane Shirazi, also authored an article on this topic that expresses disappointment in the Supreme Court's decision, though makes clear that employer initiatives to promote diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the workplace remain appropriate and should not be killed off. So again, the takeaway is clear. Certainly, the standard and the rules by which colleges and universities are making admission-based decisions has changed. But when it comes to private employers, again, while the Supreme Court's decision has not directly impacted DE&I programs, that are implemented by private employers this is an opportunity for employers to review and as necessary modify their programs so that they can withstand scrutiny even internally by an increasingly diverse workforce and a workforce that is increasingly becoming uh, more smart about what is going on with some of these diversity related and affirmative action related rules Another decision came out the very same day, June 29th, by the United States Supreme Court. For those keeping track at home, the case name is Groff versus DeJoy. And this has to do with the undue hardship defense that employers are able to rely on when rejecting certain types of accommodation requests. There used to be two separate standards for determining whether undue hardship existed for employers to provide an accommodation for disability-related issues versus when employers were faced with accommodation requests for religious-related reasons. And on June 29th, the Supreme Court, this time in a unanimous decision, issued another significant decision that now has more closely aligned both of those standards, the standards for determining undue hardship for disability-related and for religious-related accommodation requests. Put another way, the Supreme Court has now imposed a higher burden than previously existed to prove undue hardship in religious accommodation settings to, again, more closely align with the level of analysis, though not exactly going as far as, but becoming more closely aligned with the level of analysis 
that has been required when faced with a disability-related accommodation request. The Groff versus DeJoy case involved a postal worker who claimed that he needed to take off on Sundays for religious reasons, but the United States Postal Service refused because it had a policy that required all employees at his location to work on Sundays. At the lower court level, initially, the Postal Service got summary judgment dismissing the case, and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that decision. Relying on the Supreme Court's precedent back from 1977, both of those courts accepted the Postal Service's argument that the requested accommodation imposed a burden on other workers at the site, and thus what they had articulated met the then more than de minimis cost standard. The Supreme Court on June 29th increased the bar and increased the threshold that employers must now demonstrate in order to prove undue hardship for religious-based accommodation requests. So the Supreme Court has ruled that under Title VII, employers can no longer deny religious accommodation requests solely by demonstrating that the accommodation would result in more than a de minimis cost. Now they must demonstrate it would result in a substantial cost. It's interesting, just to dive into the weeds for another minute about what both sides were arguing, it seems that both parties, the plaintiff as well as the U.S. Postal Service, agreed that the more than de minimis standard would not be correct under Title VII, but they both had a different view on what the new standard should be. The plaintiff proposed that the Supreme Court should go all the way in adopting the standard under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, which required that undue hardship be proven with a showing of significant difficulty or expense. The U.S. Postal Service, on the other hand, asked for a different standard to be adopted, and that was the EEOC's interpretation of what needed to be proven for undue hardship. While there was an agreement by the court as well that the de minimis standard that had previously applied was no longer applicable, the Supreme Court rejected both interpretations proposed by the plaintiff and the Postal Service, instead finding some sort of middle ground, again, one that is more closely aligned with the ADA standard but does not exactly go that far. So instead, the Supreme Court carved out some middle ground and said that in order to deny a religious accommodation, you must show that the burden of granting that accommodation would result in substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of your particular business. Now, of course, what constitutes substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of business is going to be something that's looked at on a case-by-case -case basis, looking at the overall context of the particular employer's business. The Supreme Court referred to certain relevant factors, such as the particular accommodation at issue and the accommodation's practical impact on the employer in light of the nature, the size, and the operating cost of the employer. 
So the impact of the accommodation on other employees is also still a factor that may be relevant. But the point of this new case is that that impact needs to be substantial. It can't just be more than de minimis. The Supreme Court also made clear that an employer is not going to be able to demonstrate undue hardship by showing that there is some particular animosity among co-workers to a particular religion, to religion generally, or any animosity to accommodating religious practice. We expect that the EEOC will issue uh, further updated guidance on this issue, but the takeaway here is that for employers requesting religious accommodation under federal law, you need to now look at whether you can meet the heightened standard that the Supreme Court has just imposed as of June 29th. Here's another um, update that I want to give you. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. You might recall that on the federal level, the recent Pump Act, which went into effect on December 29th of 2022, right before uh, the new year, which was enforced by the United States Department of Labor, expanded workplace protections to allow employees to express breast milk at work. Well, now we have the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which is a new federal law that became effective on June 27th, 2023. Another hot summer development. The EEOC has put out uh, a brief series of frequently asked questions, and so I wanted to summarize those just a little bit for you. First of all, what is the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act? Well, previously, as you probably know, Pregnancy was not and, and is not considered a disability that would fall under the Americans with Disabilities Act requirements for accommodation. So unless there was a pregnancy plus situation, some medical condition in addition to just the fact that the individual is pregnant, unless you had a pregnancy plus situation, there was historically no accommodation obligation on the federal level to accommodate pregnancy conditions alone. That has changed on the federal level now. Now you no longer have to show some pregnancy-related disability under the ADA to be accommodated. You no longer need to show some disparate treatment, some discriminatory difference under Title VII to be accommodated. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act is a new federal law that now requires covered employers to provide reasonable accommodations to the known limitations of a worker related to pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions, though a related medical condition does not have to exist, again, unless that accommodation will cause the employer an undue hardship. Important to note, as I do often, that the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act does not act in lieu of other federal laws or more particularly other state or local laws to provide protection to workers affected by pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. So as always, it's critical that you look to your particular jurisdiction on the state and local levels to see if there are accommodation requirements. But as far as this new federal 
Pregnancy Workers Fairness Act goes. It went into effect, as I said, on June 27th, 2023. The EEOC is required by this law to issue regulations, which we have not seen yet. The EEOC will issue proposed versions of those regulations, which will be subject to uh, public comment and input. And then ultimately the regulations will become final. Notwithstanding the lack of EEOC regulations at the moment, the EEOC has stated that it will start accepting charges and had started accepting charges under this new federal law as of June 27, 2023. And in order for an employee to be covered and protected under this new law, the situation that the individual complains about must have happened either on or after June 27, 2023. Covered employers under this act include private and public sector employers that have at least 15 employees, as well as Congress, federal agencies, employment agencies, and labor organizations. The EEOC has described certain types of reasonable accommodations under this new law, and the concept itself shouldn't be foreign because the concept is very similar to the type of accommodations that are otherwise required under the federal ADA. They are essentially going to be changes to one's work environment or the way things are typically done at work. Examples, to the extent that they may be particularly applicable to this new Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, might be the ability to sit or drink water, receive closer parking, have flexible hours, receive more appropriately sized uniforms and safety apparel, receive additional break time to use the bathroom, to eat and to rest, perhaps to take leave or time off to recover from childbirth, and perhaps be excused from strenuous activities or activities that involve exposure to compounds or materials that may not be safe for pregnancy. The EEOC has also made clear in its frequently asked questions that an undue hardship means something that poses significant difficulty or expense for the employer. So what are you not able to do as an employer as of June 26th, sorry, as of June 27th, 2023 under this new law? As an employer, you cannot require an employee to accept an accommodation imposed by the organization without having some discussion, without having some interactive process. You are not allowed to deny some job or other employment opportunity to an otherwise qualified employee or applicant simply because that person needs a reasonable accommodation. You can't require an employee to take leave and time off if there is another reasonable accommodation that can be provided that would be effective in allowing the employee to continue to work and perform the essential functions of her job. You can't retaliate against an individual for reporting or opposing unlawful discrimination under the new law or participating in some proceeding or investigation. Again, the concepts should not be foreign to you because they are similar, if not equal to the accommodation requirements and prohibitions that have existed under the ADA. The takeaway here now is if you have an individual who needs an accommodation, 
solely as a result of being pregnant, that individual may be entitled to an accommodation under the new Federal Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, even though she does not have a particular disability. Let's talk about some wage and hour developments. Wage and hour. Can't go many episodes without talking about something in the wage and hour area. First, I want to update you on independent contractor issues. We hear about those all the time. How do you go about determining if your worker is truly classified properly as an independent contractor or whether the worker has been misclassified and should be considered an employee? The outcome of that decision, as we know, is significant because there are protections and benefits afforded to employees under the primary employment laws out there, federal, state, and local level, and generally not to independent contractors. We know, so I'm almost embarrassed to have to say this again, we know that simply calling somebody an independent contractor does not rule the day. Simply paying somebody on a 1099 basis itself does not rule the day. Simply by having a worker agree that he or she is going to be or wants to be an independent contractor does not necessarily in and of itself rule the day. It is what the day-to-day activities look like. It is what the worker is actually doing that will be more relevant to whether the independent contractor classification is one that is proper. So let's look at how the rules may be shifting yet again. The NLRB is making headlines here in this area too, as it has again dipped into the past to reinstate Obama-era rules and to eliminate more pro-employer rules. This time, by recently reinstating a more pro-employee standard that makes it harder for companies to classify a worker as an independent contractor instead of truly as an employee. Specifically, and for those keeping track at home, the name of the case is Inri, the Atlanta Opera, Inc. On June 13, 2023, the NLRB overruled board precedent from just back in 2019, again showing how these things shift with the political winds so frequently, to go back to more of a common law test that looked at a large number of factors to determine if someone was an employee for purposes of the National Labor Relations Act. Prior NLRB standard relied more on the concept of entrepreneurial opportunity as having the greatest weight in the analysis. Now, under this new decision issued on June 13, you must look at and consider all factors equally. The extent of control by the employer, whether or not the worker is engaged in a distinct operation or business, whether the work is usually done under the direction of the employer or by a specialist without some supervision, What is the skill required with the particular work? Does the employer or the worker supply the tools, the instrumentalities, and the location of performing the work? What is the length of time for which the worker is providing services? What is the method of payment? 
Is the work part of the regular business of the organization? What is the belief of the parties when forming the relationship? It will be relevant, but as I said a moment ago, not determinative. And are the services provided part of the employer's business or is it independent of the business? The board majority in this new Atlanta Opera case believes that entrepreneurial opportunity should only apply to actual, not merely theoretical circumstances. In other words, the board now believes that you should be looking at whether the right was actually exercised by the worker as opposed to simply whether the worker had the right and whether a contract reserved the right to engage in certain activity. For example, it may not be enough to this board majority that an agreement between the company and the worker allowed the worker to perform services for other entities in addition to that particular company. It might be more relevant instead to this new board majority whether the worker was in fact actually exercising that right by actually performing services by more than one or for more than one organization. The bottom line here and the takeaway here is that the NLRB is now under this standard more likely to find that a worker is an employee rather than an independent contractor for purposes of the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA. Though we will have to see moving forward, like with other recent NLRB and general counsel activity, whether this case, whether the Atlanta Opera case, will survive judicial scrutiny on appeal. I have two big issues with this case, or I should say there are two big issues with this case. One, again, is this notion of how shifting political winds and administrations which then result in very um, frequent shifting standards, how difficult it makes that for employers to be able to guide their own behavior and be advised on appropriate behavior because the standard changes back and forth every couple of years. The other issue that is out there is, again, we don't have just one national standard to determine independent contractor status for all employment law purposes. There are different standards under different statutes, which also makes it difficult for companies to be guided on how they should behave and to be advised on how they should behave. This Atlanta Opera case by the NLRB again imposes an independent contractor standard but only for the National Labor Relations Act. That independent contractor standard may be different and there may be nuances when you're looking at what standard may apply for other purposes whether that is workers compensation, unemployment insurance, other wage and hour issues under the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act. And so that's a great segue, I think, because it's not just the NLRB that has been doing things recently with the independent contractor test. The United States Department of Labor is also doing something in this area as well when it comes to coverage under the FLSA. You might remember that the uh, United States Department of Labor proposed a new independent contractor rule back in October 2022 that was specifically designed, I think, to impact gig workers in particular. If that rule does go into effect, if the proposed rule does become final and effective, 
It would require that workers be classified as employees if they are economically dependent on the company. Economically dependent on the company. And the new DOL rule would look more primarily at the economic factors that are relevant to the relationship, such as price or fee setting, the ability to work for others, and whether the worker's services are integral to the company's business. The proposed rule would also impact, I think, a very significant argument that organizations make when it comes to, hey, this individual is an independent contractor because that individual has a lot of flexibility when it comes to scheduling. That individual can make determinations as to when he or she may work. The proposed rule would also make clear, however, that scheduling flexibility is not necessarily indicative of independent contractor status when other aspects of control are present. Again, that would seem to be a direct attack on gig workers, though scheduling flexibility still would be a factor to be considered. The flip side is that the new rule would require you to look at factors that might mitigate the importance of a worker being able to decide his or her own hours. For example, in cases where the worker may be disciplined for turning down work. In cases where there are only a limited number of hours being offered by the company in the first place. The Department of Labor has stated this summer that they are busy reviewing approximately 50,000 comments that they received to the proposed rule. And they expect to publish the final independent contractor rule sometime around October 2023. We will see if that changes or if something is in fact released by the DOL on the independent contractor front this coming October 2023. Here too, there will likely be legal challenges to the rule or at the very least, necessary gaps and guidance to be filled in by courts. So on the wage and hour front, it's not just the independent contractor stuff that's making news. We now also have an update on the overtime issue. Over the last several years and presidential administrations, there's been a lot of talk about updating and revising the federal rules for determining if an individual can be classified as exempt from overtime entitlement. And remember that there are essentially two prongs that you need to look at when determining if an employee can truly be exempt. You have to look at the salary basis test. So an employee has to be paid on a salary basis and that salary has to be of a minimum threshold, not only on the federal level, but if the state minimum threshold is greater, you have to follow the state salary threshold. But then you also have the second prong, which is certain job duties that must be present depending on the particular exemption you are looking at. There have been lots of proposals and challenges over the last several years to efforts to increase the minimum salary thresholds. There has not been, however, a lot of movement on the desire to change the job duties test, that second prong. In fact, the last time that the job duties tests were changed in any real way 
was back in 2004. Well, the coffee is percolating in this particular pot. The United States Department of Labor announced this summer that it would be publishing a new proposed overtime rule in August 2023. For those of you keeping track at home, that's next month. The annual, on the federal level, minimum salary threshold remains at $35,568, which comes out to $684 a week. With the minimum threshold on the federal level for the federally recognized highly compensated employee test still at $107,432. Now, we don't know if something will actually be released this coming August. We don't know whether there'll be a change just to the minimum salary threshold or will there be new proposed modifications to the job duties tests. We also don't know if the release date will actually happen this August or whether that will be pushed back. We do know that renewed chatter on this federal overtime issue is intensifying and that we will be hearing from the Department of Labor sometime soon on proposed new overtime exemption rules. We'll keep you posted. But it's another important and hot development to keep on your radar. Let's move to artificial intelligence. And New York City as the bellwether jurisdiction for the regulation of AI tools. Remember, I like to talk about AI in two buckets because there's so much out there in crossover conversation about different kinds of AI. It gets confusing, it gets overwhelming, I think. I like to talk about AI in two buckets. Bucket number one, includes AI tools that are used to make employment-related decisions. And bucket number two, what's referred to as generative AI, which is used to generate new content. On the first bucket, New York City, as many of you know by now, became the bellwether jurisdiction when it enacted a first-of-its-kind law imposing certain obligations on employers who use AI tools for certain employment decisions. The New York City law, which is enforced by the New York City Department of Consumer and Worker Protection, DCWP, took effect initially on uh, December 11th, 2021, but employers initially had until January 1st, 2023 to comply. On April 5th, 2023, because I know a lot of you like chronological timelines, New York City published final regulations on this AI rule. DCWP announced later that it would begin enforcing the law on April 15th, 2023, but that enforcement start date was then pushed back once more to where it is now, July 5th, 2023. So enforcement of this law in New York City has now begun as of July 5th, 2023. As I've said in the past when I focus a little bit in this podcast on a particular jurisdiction, even if your company does not operate in or have employees in New York City, I still think it's important to keep an eye on labor and employment trends around the country like this, since it might one day come to your jurisdiction or it might apply to your organization one day. 
So I think it's important to understand what this New York City law does and does not do. Essentially, the New York City law requires independent audits of artificial intelligence technologies that employers use to recruit and hire candidates and promote employees in order to weed out discriminatory bias. The results of the independent audits must be published and job applicants and employees have to be notified of the use of automated employment decision tools, AEDTs, in the evaluation of their candidacy for employment or promotion, and individuals may opt out of the use of automated employment decision tools, again, AEDTs, during the assessment or evaluation process. In the final regulations that were published on April 5th and are now being enforced as of July 5th, the regulations make clear that the only employment decisions that are subject to this law are those that involve hiring and promotion. So decisions regarding, for example, compensation, termination, workforce planning, labor deployment, benefits, workplace monitoring, and likely even performance evaluations are, without more guidance, likely to be beyond the reach of this New York City law. The regulations also limit the scope of the law to those candidates who have actually applied for a specific job. The law does not apply then to tools used to identify potential candidates who have not yet even applied for the position. It's also important to note that the New York City final regulations restrict the law to hiring or promotion decisions that screen candidates or employees by determining whether they should be selected or advanced in the process. So, for example, when an employer uses a tool to sort applicants, perhaps into three tiers, highly qualified or qualified and less qualified, and as a practical matter does not advance any candidate who ranks in the less qualified bucket, that use of a tool might not uh, my, I'm sorry, that use of a tool will almost always fall within the scope of the law. But you have to further look at what the AI tool is doing. Because the law and the final regulations make clear that the AI tool is only going to fall within the scope of the law when it issues a what's referred to as a simplified output. And where that output is used to, quote, substantially assist or replace discretionary decision making, end quote. A covered AEDT output, which again may be some score, a classification, or a recommendation, has to be used in one of three ways in order to be covered by the new law. It has to be the sole criteria in making the employment decision with no other factors considered. Or it has to be a criterion that is given more determinative weight than any other criterion. Or it is used to overrule conclusions that are derived from other factors, including human decision making. If your AEDT is subject to the New York City uh, law and regulations, you as an employer must post in a clear and conspicuous manner the date of the most recent bias audit that you conducted, 
a summary of the results, including the source and explanation of the data that was used, the selection or the scoring rates and impact ratios for all of the categories that are applicable, and the distribution date of the AEDT. Now this posting requirement can be satisfied by using some active hyperlink to a website or in a website that contains the required information so long as the link is clearly identified as being a link to the results of the bias audit. The organization must also list the type of data collected for the AEDT, the source of that data, and the organization's data retention policy. The law also provides certain notices to be given to candidates for employment or promotion within 10 business days before using the tool. The notice has to contain notice that an AEDT is in fact being used to assess and evaluate the candidate. The job qualifications and characteristics that the AEDT will use in its analysis. If it's not disclosed anywhere else on the company's website, there must be notice of the AEDT's data source type and as I said before, the employer's data retention policy. And you also must provide notice that a candidate may request an alternative selection process or accommodation. Wow, so what's the takeaway here? As a threshold matter, I think your organization should first need to really drill down and determine whether you're using an AEDT in the first place. Some organizations don't necessarily even know that they are using an AEDT for some portion of a hiring or promotion process. So you need to get an internal understanding as to whether you are using an AI tool for that purpose, even without realizing it, so that you make sure that you can decide whether you are covered under the New York City law, and if so, that you are complying with all of the procedural and substantive requirements, including that you are performing the appropriate independent investigation or the independent, uh, I'm sorry, uh, bias audit for that artificial intelligence tool. If you have operations in New York City, or you have employees in New York City, or you have job um, openings or promotion opportunities in New York City, this is something that you might want to look into a little deeper. If you don't, this is again something that you should be keeping on your radar because artificial intelligence will continue to be regulated throughout the United States, both on the federal level and on the state and local levels as well. So that's a lot to hit you with. There is, as I said, a lot been going on in this hot summer with some hot labor and employment topics. Many of this requires further discussion. Many of this requires us to keep our eyes and ears open for further developments on these topics. And that is exactly what we will do here on the Employment Law Now podcast. I am always so appreciative to all of you subscribing or downloading or just listening to a single episode of this podcast. I will continue to do the best I can to bring these topics to your attention. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, 
Continue to keep those coming by emailing me at mschmidt at cozen.com. I appreciate any and all feedback, comments, and questions. Again, I hope all of you continue to enjoy the rest of your summer. I hope all of you, your colleagues, your family, continue to stay safe, healthy, and happy. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.